I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. Hey, we are in John chapter 16, starting with verse 16 today, thinking of the topic of peace in troubled times. This is episode 43 of season one, and we're on the downhill now as we're working our way through the Gospel of John. But here in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, we're privileged to get an intimate look at the last few minutes Jesus had alone with his disciples before he was arrested. Jesus knew it was coming, and he wanted to share with them from the deepest part of his heart. So let's listen in, starting from John 16, verse 16. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My older brother, Kim, turned 53, accomplished one of his lifelong goals. He and two friends from his law firm flew to Arizona and took a one-day hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and then they hiked back up the next day. Hiking the Grand Canyon is no small feat. It is a steep, grueling trail, an exhausting trek in 97-degree weather or heat, and you're carrying a 40-pound pack. It is like walking down uneven stairs for four and a half hours. My brother is a runner. He's also had several surgeries on his knees and Achilles tendon. But So he was worried because going down is tough on your knees and the angle just jams your toes into the front of your boots. So blisters can become a big problem. 
So they made it down okay, set up their campsite on the shoreline of the Colorado River. That night they feasted on New York strip steaks at the nearby Phantom Ranch Lodge. They slept out under an amazing star-filled sky, got up at 4.30 the next morning, had a big breakfast loaded up with water and energy bars and all the rest, and set out for the even more grueling nine-and-a-half-mile hike back to the rim of the Grand Canyon on the Bright Angel Trail. Kim said the first mile along the Colorado River was fairly easy and so beautiful, but then they started up and up and up again in this 90-plus degree heat. Their muscles were aching from the day before. They were nursing some raw blisters and sore ankles. And afterwards, he mailed me and described it this way. He said, body parts chafed in areas that aren't supposed to be chafed. And the sheer drop-offs along the trail really started to freak him out because you can slip right over the edge. But up they went over unevenly spaced timbers and rocks and large stones. They passed several donkey trains coming down the trail, and one of the donkey train leaders told his group they had just finished the steepest part of the trail. Well, that was not good news for my brother, who was heading up into it. And he wrote, For the last two hours, I literally focused on getting the next step done, one step at a time, because quitting was not an option. One of the guys wore a heart monitor that regularly registered 140 beats a minute. They were so exhausted that they got to the point where they could walk five minutes and then rest five minutes, walk and rest. And while they rested, they'd look out on the unbelievable beauty of the Grand Canyon and then hit the trail again. It was a seven and a half hour climb out. And you can imagine the relief and the high fives and the sheer exhilaration when they finally reached the top of the canyon. In some ways, I think Jesus would say that hike through the Grand Canyon you could see it almost as a metaphor for the journey of life. Think of it, surrounded by incredible beauty, yet coupled with the inner struggle to keep going, enduring pain and exhaustion, but going on with a few close companions to encourage you. The beauty is almost intensified by the struggle, and perhaps the pain is intensified by the beauty. And so I love the words from Jesus at the conclusion of this passage in John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, take courage, I have overcome the world. That band of disciples was a pretty shredded bunch of guys at this point. They had had all they could handle. They were frightened, confused, feeling pain. They were a hurting bunch of folks. They were worried about the future. They didn't know what was going to happen around the next corner. So what does Jesus do in verse 12? He said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. In other words, Jesus quits kind of the theological dissertation. They'd, they'd heard all that they could handle. Too many speakers go on too long and then lose their audience and lose their impact. I like the adage, the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. So know when to cut it short, right? It's like the cowboy saying, you got too much hay on the pitchfork. In other words, you don't dump the whole load of hay on the cow. They can't handle it. And Jesus had more to say, even though he had already said a lot of fabulous stuff. It didn't seem to bother him that he couldn't share more. He'd already shared with them for three years. In towns like Bethany, in the countryside, in the temple, beside a well, on a hillside, on the beach. And it is interesting to think that the gospel contains only a partial record of all that he said, and that there were many things he was content to leave unsaid. Many things yet to be revealed. Jesus didn't seem to worry about it. 
some people today try to argue that Jesus would approve of certain lifestyles because he never specifically condemned homosexual behavior and the like. But the number of topics Jesus didn't specifically talk about is infinite. And so you could use that kind of twisted logic. I mean, you could end up saying Jesus wasn't opposed to nuclear war because he never talked about the atom bomb. Or you just fill in the blank on the issue. Jesus did not cover every single issue specifically. What he did was endorse and fulfill all the teachings of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and gave us as his disciples the basics of salvation and an understanding of the kingdom of God. All the rest he left to be handled by our guide, the Holy Spirit, whom he promises will guide us into all truth. So here, Jesus isn't really worried about his disciples not knowing enough. He's not worried about us either. He doesn't lay it all out, and, the, and that kind of bugs the heck of a lot of people who just want the absolute complete blueprint. Jesus doesn't give us a perfect systematic theology, and that bothers a lot of Christians. And no human-generated systematic theology has got it 100% right. And that's true whether you're one of my Calvinist friends or Armenians or Catholics or whatever. There is no perfect theological system. Instead, Jesus gives us his presence in the Spirit. And guess what? That's enough. He doesn't have to say it all. Jesus doesn't give them any easy answers either. He doesn't give them sugar-coated religious platitudes. No chicken soup for the soul here. He tells us straight out, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And I love the honesty of Jesus. He doesn't promise them a life that'll be a bed of roses. It's not a health and wealth gospel at all. He doesn't say, follow me and your life will be easier. No, he is unbelievably honest about the hardships they are going to face. But it is an honesty with a promise. By being with Jesus, they would experience a unique kind of peace unavailable to people who were not attached to him. They would have a peace no matter what the world threw at them. They will have a peace because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has overcome the evil of the world. That's his promise to his followers throughout the ages. In the world, you're going to have trouble. And in Jesus, you can have peace. So how does Jesus bring peace into our lives? What kind of peace is he talking about? How do we experience the peace of Christ in this troubled world? Well, I think, first of all, it means to take on Christ's perspectives. Because some days, I'm just afraid to open the newspaper. I don't want to go online. I don't want to see all the trauma and drama in the headlines. You know, the media follows the journalistic motto, if it bleeds, it leads. So they want to present every horrible thing that has happened around the world, everything that's going to get you upset or, uh, or confused. And to experience God's peace, we have to begin to see all the world's events from God's point of view. There's been trouble ever since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. There has never been some idyllic period when life was easy. Never. Ever heard a couple say, well, they're not going to have children because they don't think it would be fair to children to bring them up into this kind of a world. Well, friends, what other kind of world is there? Sure, it's a tough time to raise kids. It's always been a tough time to raise kids. What else is new? When has it ever been easy? Would you have wanted to raise a family 150 years ago when you're lucky if only half your children died from childhood diseases like the flu? Was that the ideal time? What they're real, really saying is that they don't want to have the responsibility of being parents because it involves sacrifice and struggle and the pain of loving children that eventually you can't control means sharing the struggles of children and their hurts and entering into their pains and their joys and their challenges. 
Jesus, I think, wants us to be optimistic realists. Optimistic realists. To understand history, to know that there will always be war and rumors of war until Christ returns. There will always be poverty. There will always be sickness. There will always be inhumanity. There will always be natural, quote-unquote, disasters. It is a false expectation that somehow, through our technology, the world is going to become a better and better and better and happier place. The main difference in our age is that instant news and technology makes us aware of every single tragic thing that happens anywhere across the globe. Fifty or hundred years ago, we didn't hear about all the things that were happening. They still happened, but we didn't hear about them, the frequency. For us, we are inundated with that kind of terrible information every single day. So the volume of media disasters does cast a shadow over life. And the temptation then is to cut ourselves off from reality. Don't pay attention to it. Kind of stick your hand and head in the sand and hope it goes away. But Jesus understood that in this world, there will be suffering. In this world, you will have trouble, he said. Now, most philosophies just kind of end there. There is going to be trouble. They have no solution. The only thing to do is to try and minimize the pain, escape it, protect yourself. And that's why the two main values of our culture right now are, 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 you know, are having our own kind of personal peace and our own personal prosperity. Personal peace and personal prosperity. Whatever else happens in the rest of the world is not my problem. As long as I have mine, as long as my life and happiness is secured, that's all that counts. I'm so glad Jesus didn't end his statement there. He added those critical words, take courage, I have overcome the world. I have overcome death itself, the thing that people fear the most. I am more powerful than that. I have overcome all evil. And by taking on God's perspective, we free ourselves from these false expectations of peace, that a peaceful life means a life with no problems, no worries, no stress. Friends, Jesus didn't live a life of ease. Christ's life outwardly was one of the most troubled lives that ever lived. As Charles Drummond wrote, Christ's outward life was filled with tempest and tumult, tumult and tempest, the waves breaking over it all the time. But the inner life was a sea of glass. The great calm was always there. Unquote. Christ had peace in the middle of the struggle, not apart from it. He embraced the beauty and the pain of life together at the same time. He could balance them both. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this as a Lutheran pastor in World War II in Germany. He worked opposing Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, and he was eventually he was arrested, sent to a concentration camp, eventually hanged for working on a plot to assassinate Hitler. He was a modern-day martyr. And in prison, he wrote several of the greatest Christian books of the 20th century. He wrote this about Jesus. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies, at the, end of all his, at the end of all, his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. We find Christ's peace as we take on his perspective on the world and engage it in his name. And that leads to a second thing. We live by Christ's purpose. When we follow Christ, we begin to realize we're involved in something greater than ourselves. God is working out his will. He has a purpose. He has a reason why. 
When we connect with God's reason why, somehow that gives us a power and an ability to endure the trouble of the world that we're experiencing on a daily basis. When we get in line with what God is doing, only then will we know his peace. If we are out of line with God's purpose, out of line with God's way, then there's no way we'll experience his peace. This begins by, first of all, having peace with God. You can't experience the peace of God unless you're at peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. As we place our faith in Christ himself, then we have peace with God. Without that connection, God's peace is impossible to experience. When we then begin to pursue his way, to understand his function in our lives, his authority over us, his plan, his purpose for us, then we begin to glimpse a little bit more of what his peace is all about. Have you ever read Rick Warren's uh, book called The Purpose Driven Life? If not, you really should. Maybe you should do that as as a fall project. It's a great introductory level book about the Christian faith It's a great refresher course for established Christians, but also a book that you could share with a spiritual seeker and maybe read through it together, read it as a book club. I believe it is still one of the best-selling nonfiction books of all time next to the Bible, but someone's going to have to fact-check that for me. This is in the introduction to his first chapter and states the way I really feel. This is more than a book. It is is a guide to a 40-day spiritual journey that will enable you to discover the answer to life's most important questions. What What on earth am I here for? By the end of this journey, you will know God's purpose for your life and will understand the big picture, how all the pieces of your life fit together. Having this perspective will reduce your stress, simplify your decisions, increase your satisfaction, and most important, prepare you for eternity. So if you want to experience the peace of God, you have to understand God's purpose for your life as well. So after experiencing God's perspective and understanding Christ's purpose, we also experience Christ's presence. J. Oswald Sanders once wrote that, and I quote, Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God, unquote. Remember the thunderstorms that you hear sometimes in the summer, how many children climb into bed with their parents I can remember that as a child, and boy, it felt so good, so secure and safe because of just their presence. It's the same thing in the midst of trouble in this world when Christ comes alongside us. He's right there. Through the Holy Spirit, we sense his strength. We learn to trust. We talked last episode about the Holy Spirit being our connection with God, and that's really what it means to experience God's peace. The Spirit comes alongside. He is right there, and we are close to him. And just in that simple presence of God, we experience a kind of strength that we can't even begin to articulate. It's a sense of knowing, a sense of confidence, a sense of safety, that my life really is in God's hands. Psalm 27.1, The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Only the person who can say, The Lord is the strength of my life, can then say, Of whom shall I be afraid? Eugene Peterson says it this way, The Christian life is going to God, 
In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on. They breathe the same air. They drink the same water. They shop in the same stores. They read the same newspapers. They are citizens under the same government. They pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline. They fear the same dangers. They are subject to the same pressures. They get the same distresses. They are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. That's from his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of trouble. It is five minutes of hiking and five minutes of resting. It is the beauty and the love and the joy and the pain and the sorrow and the hardship all mixed together. We experience the kind of peace Jesus is talking about when we take on his perspective, when we live by Christ's purpose, when we experience his presence. And the Apostle Paul says it this way, and I hope this is your experience this week. May the peace of Christ, which trans all understanding, guard your heart and your mind. And-